Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in again into our chest webinar series for COVID-19. And we have a wonderful session to, uh, today specifically to address the needs of millions of uh, COVID-19 survivors and these waves of COVID-19 survivors that, uh, that we're seeing the world over. So we have uh, an expert panel. Uh, we're going to do our best to address some of the issues that uh, come up while trying to rehabilitate some of these uh, COVID-19 survivors, along with our non-COVID-19 patients. Uh, we'll talk about resilience and mental health. And we're also going to talk about what chronic critical illness means. So uh, without further ado, I am Neha Dangayach. I'm going to be the moderator for this session. I'm a neurointensivist from Mount Sinai. And I'm going to ask our wonderful panelists to go in order and introduce themselves because they're all so well accomplished. Thank you for joining us. So let's start with you, Monica. Hello, thank you for having me here today. Very excited to be here. My name is Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. I'm the professor and chair of rehabilitation medicine at the uh, Long School of Medicine at UT Health in San Antonio. So I have started here a post-COVID recovery clinic several months ago and taking care of a lot of the long COVID patients. And we'll be giving you a little bit of background in, on what we're doing for those patients. Awesome, thank you, Monica. Welcome, and Jafar. So, uh, hello everyone and thank you for having me. My name is uh, Jafar Abunasar. I'm a pulmonary intuitive care physician at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm also the medical director of our post-ICU long-term acute care program. And my field of expertise and or interest is in care of the chronically critically ill patient. Um, we've gotten much busier now with COVID, but, that, but my role is really uh, care of the patient who's chronically critically ill and specifically those who have a need for prolonged mechanical ventilation. Thank you so much. And Deb? Hi, Neha. Nice to see you again. So I'm Deb Marin. I'm a professor of psychiatry in the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And I'll be talking today about uh, the behavioral health consequences of COVID and uh, some management issues with regards to them. Thank you. Thank you. So let's uh, dive right in. Jafar, I think you're gonna show us some slides. Mm -hmm. So you go to the next slide. So in order to talk about chronic critical illness, we do have to at least agree on a definition of what it actually is. Um, that's easier said than done. The, the first time, at least I can find, that the term chronically critically ill was used was in 1985, uh, where they defined it as patients who survived an initial episode of critical illness but remained dependent on some form of intensive care. Uh, what is striking about this editorial is that the title was The Chronically Critically Ill to Save or Let Die. And now, obviously, this was 35 years ago. What we, what we know now is very different than what we knew then. And I'm going to come back to this title later on in my talk when I talk about COVID-19 in particular. Another term that's used fairly common and is really nebulous in the literature is prolonged mechanical ventilation. And if you scour the literature, you'll find any, anywhere from four days to four weeks on the mechanical ventilator as being used as um, a cutoff point, if you will, for what is considered prolonged. Uh, more recently, and by more recently, I mean about 15 years ago, there was a consensus statement that said that at least 21 consecutive days for more than six hours a day on the mechanical ventilator constitutes prolonged mechanical ventilation. That is technically expert opinion, though. It's not exactly the, um, a statistical variant or a, a really a solid evidence base, if you will. And I, I do take issue with 21 consecutive days being the cutoff, out, and I'll tell you why later on in my talk. But generally speaking, those are the, the two definitions that, that are floating out there in the, in the literature. You can go on to the next slide. So I think of chronic critical illness as more of a clinical syndrome. And I, I did come about these five or six factors retrospectively just by looking at my LTAC patients and seeing what do they have in common that seems to be more prevalent than the average ICU patient. So I personally think of prolonged mechanical ventilation as mechanical ventilation that's used in a fashion that would preclude the ability to liberate the patient from the ventilator and discontinue the endotracheal tube. So that's just a fancy semantic way of saying you're unable to uh, liberate the patient and extubate them on your first or second trial. Uh, ICU delirium is very common in these patients, so a neuromuscular weakness and decondition is as, as well, uh, but it's, it's a form of neurologic and brain dysfunction. Uh, they also have a very high incidence of malnutrition, loss of lean body mass, loss of muscle mass, and volume overload with the associated skin breakdown. So when you, when you combine these six factors, if a patient has three or more of them, I would consider them chronically critically ill. 
And by this definition, about 10% of our ICU uh, population in general is chronically critically ill. And specifically of the COVID-19 patients in our ICU, it's about 8%, so roughly the same. You can move on to the next slide. Over the, the course of the past year, we've, we've uh, had a chance to look at the spectrum of illness of COVID-19. 40% are asymptomatic, as we know, 40% have mild symptoms, and the remainder, the 20% or so, require hospitalization. Of the hospitalized patients, 10% of them will end up requiring ICU care. From our experience in the Cleveland Clinic, there are about 11 hospitals in Northeast Ohio where we've cared for patients in the ICU with COVID. About 8% of them would meet the criteria for chronic illness, like I mentioned above, and 5% of them would require prolonged mechanical ventilation by that old definition of 21 days. Uh, it just raises the, you know, the spectrum of the need to recognize post-intensive care syndrome early and screen for it when we have this number of patients who are coming in at this proportion who are going to be chronically critically ill. Some good news is that the survival in our ICU is fairly high. Uh, so overall, we have an 82% survival rate but even those who are mechanically ventilated invasively within the tracheal tube, 64% survive. And if you separate those who are under 65 years of age, it's actually higher than 80%. So closer to 81% survive. But of course, this raises the spectrum of, we're going to have a large surge of patients who are chronically critically ill. You can go on to the next slide. I'm not going to touch on this too much because the other speakers in the panel are going to go over it. But I have noticed an, an increase and in a very wide prevalence of physical uh, and uh, just neuromuscular dysfunction in the patients who survive. The mechanical ventilator itself leads to prolonged immobility. The deep sedation and use of neuromuscular blockade delays the institution of physical therapy. And repeated repositioning, with, which we've noticed a little bit more of now, going from the prone position to supine and back, it also causes some significant shoulder subluxation, brachial plexus injuries, and some neuromuscular dysfunction that we don't normally see. And just because of how many patients we've had to use in prone positioning, we're seeing a little bit more of it now. What does stand out more and what is very urgent to, to pay attention to is injury to the upper airway. So using an endotracheal tube in this fashion and for this duration can cause a significant amount of laryngeal injury. Uh, with long-standing dysphagia and dysphonia that has some consequences months down the line that I'll touch on in a minute. You can go on to the next slide. We know, uh, this is extrapolating from other ICU patients, we know that about one-third of these patients a year out are going to have some level of cognitive impairment. And when measured in the past, it's actually similar to survivors of a moderate traumatic brain injury. Next slide. Uh, this is the bane of our existence in the LTAC, delirium, and the incidence of delirium in ICU survivors of COVID-19 in our uh, experience here in Northeast Ohio is just about 70%. I believe it might even be higher, depending on how you define it. Uh, I looked at what are the modifiable risk factors. What can we do in the ICU to prevent or, or uh, uh, anticipate this? And by far, the strongest correlation uh, was in the duration of invasive mechanical ventilation, how long that endotracheal tube remains in, and in the use of benzodiazepines in our sedation protocols. Those two factors were the, were the ones that stood out the most and that had the, the strongest correlation with the development of, of prolonged encephalopathy and delirium. And, and it's why I, I stopped when I said the definition of prolonged mechanical ventilation is 21 days, is if we delay getting the, in, the endotracheal tube out, uh, we prolong the use of uh, sedatives for days and weeks, and we end up with this as a consequence, with a majority of our patients, a vast majority of patients, delirious for a prolonged period of time. It doesn't help that we've had a reduction in human interaction. The clinical staff are wearing gowns, gloves, masks, and face shields, and there are no visitors, so you can't see family and friends. So that also you know, compounds the problem. Next slide. Anxiety, PTSD, and depression in survivors of the ICU is fairly common. About one third of the survivors, of course, are going to deal with this. Next slide. Uh, extrapolating from survivors of SARS a year out, uh, some of the anxiety and, and PTSD that they, they dealt with was a stigma of feeling of being blamed for the spread of the illness, fear of infecting their loved ones, or even death of their loved ones, as, as well as survivor's guilt. And a lot of them actually mentioned media attention to the unfavorable outcomes, that the constant drumbeat of you know, the, the disease and, and death from the disease uh, does have some lasting traumatic impact. Next slide. So this is where I think I'm going to spend the bulk of my, of my time uh, speaking, because it sounds like, at least from the submitted question, people want to know how the LTAC environment had to deal with, uh, with the pandemic, especially early on. 
looking at our numbers in Ohio through February, March, and April, we were faced with a, a situation where we needed to prepare for our acute care hospitals getting overrun. Uh, we were worried that we were going to uh, be in a bed crunch where we didn't have uh, the capability to admit all our patients who needed to be admitted, and we had to prepare for expanding our bed capacity. As a medical director of the LTAC, I had to come up with a plan to, to prepare the LTAC to be part of this program. So uh, what we needed to decide is who is the patient who is most likely to be able to be cared for in an LTAC if we got to the point that there is no bed capacity in acute care hospitals. Uh, so a lot of back and forth between uh, our leadership and we, we came to the conclusion that we are faced with a potential risk of uh, localized outbreaks in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities and such. Uh, where we might have an opportunity to directly admit those patients to the LTAC and bypass the acute care hospitals if, if the acute illness is something that we could handle. Now, there are some regulatory uh, hoops we had to jump through, and we had to speak with representatives of the state health departments to make sure that this was uh, something that would be acceptable. But obviously, in, in, in a state of an emergency, like what was declared in the state of Ohio and throughout the country, uh, we can get waivers for specific regulations so that we can we can implement a program like this. So we had designed um, a program where we will be able to admit patients who are still considered contagious and an infectious risk. That could be devastating if you admit people who are COVID positive to an LTAC, and there are other patients here who are still receiving care for you know prolonged mechanical ventilation, chronic wounds that is not related to COVID. So uh, we looked uh, with our engineers at the footprint of our building. Uh, this building has three floors. The first floor is an acute rehab. The second floor is a medical surgical level of care. And the third floor is our ICU. So we figured out that fairly quickly that the easiest place to separate patients from the rest of the population is on the third floor. Uh, we took what would have been our loading dock elevator, uh, which has an entrance from the, from the back of the building. We programmed it so that it only stops on the ground floor and on the third floor. And we put physical barriers so that people cannot get to that elevator except from the rear entrance. So we decided if we're going to be admitting patients who are contagious uh, with COVID-19 or an infectious risk, it would come through a one specific entrance in the rear of the building into one specific elevator that can only stop on the third floor with physical barriers that would direct the patients and the personnel straight to our containment unit. Our intensive care unit has double doors and uh, two changing rooms at, uh, at the entrance. So we would lock those two double doors with a donning and doffing station for PPE so that patients can be directly brought in. Once they're brought into, the, uh, into our containment unit, now they're separated from the rest of the building and no one can get in or out except through that donning and doffing PPE station. So mistakes are very hard to, to come by if you're going to be getting into that unit. Uh, that also allowed for uh, preservation of our PPE because you only enter the unit once and you don't need to keep changing on and off uh, with your gown, gloves, and mask uh, as you come in and out of the unit. Uh, we can go to the next slide. We kept the patients who were considered, uh, considered contagious and in isolation up on the third floor up until it was uh, able, uh, up until we were able to discontinue the, the isolation. And we, we repurposed one room on the second floor uh, to be a, a modified step-down unit where we could also cohort uh, COVID patients. This one room in particular uh, is right down the hall from the elevator that is used for patient transport. So a patient coming from the third floor down to that, to that room would never be rolled in front of any other patient room. They would go straight from the containment unit to the other, uh, to the other uh, room where, it's, where we cohorted four patients. Uh, there were uh, double doors there as well that we were also able to separate into a donning and docking station. So we had the third floor and the second floor. We can move on to the next slide. This is just a description of the same, so we can go on. Next slide. Same deal, next slide. So that just described the physical plant of how we were able to get people in and out uh, while maintaining infection control. Now, what has happened to these patients? Uh, how did they do overall? And in the last nine or 10 months, we've had about 120 patients up here. Uh, more than 70 of them required prolonged mechanical ventilation. These were all uh, done through a tracheostomy. Uh, we were pleasantly surprised to find that the rate of liberation in this program is uh, north of 75%. Uh, but what was uh, disheartening, and what I, uh, like if you leave my talk with one takeaway point, it's this, the rate of decannulation even though we were able to uh, liberate more than 75%, the rate of decannulation and discontinuing the tracheostomy was only about 33%. With the main reason 
that we needed to leave the tracheostomy in, dysphagia, and prolonged intractable encephalopathy. Uh, the dysphagia means that the patient did not regain the ability to speak or swallow and could not protect their airway, uh, which is why I do take issue still with that old definition of 21 days. If you leave an endotracheal tube in for 21 days, this is the consequence. The patient might be able to come and become liberated from the ventilator, but you end up with long-term damage to the upper airway. And uh, we are faced with a situation of a spontaneously breathing, liberated patient who cannot have their tracheostomy removed and cannot return to oral diet. 52% uh, of our patients were discharged either home or to an acute rehab, uh, rehab facility, which means eventually they would reach home. And my estimate is that our 90-day mortality is about 11%. It might be give or take a percentage uh, point or two in either direction because I still have to follow up with some skilled nursing facilities to make sure. Uh, but roughly our, our outcomes are, uh, are very favorable. You can go on to the next slide. So my action plan and take home points. Identify those who are at risk for chronic critical illness and modify your sedation and analgesia protocols to anticipate that. Strict adherence to a ventilator bundle workflow, especially sedation vacations, awaiting trials, and early implementation of spontaneous breathing trials. Next slide. And consideration for early tracheostomy. I think that we really need to be thinking of switching from an endotracheal tube to a tracheostomy at about six or seven days in. If the patient is still requiring 50% or more FiO2 and 12 liters or more minute volume, and they have failed one or two spontaneous breathing trials, that's a patient who really should be targeted for an early tracheostomy because it allows for aggressive and early physical therapy and it allows for a discontinuation of the endotracheal tube, the injury to the upper airway, and a discontinuation of those continuous sedatives. Next slide. And this is my uh, easy term for ABCs. My patients in the LTAC, I want them awake, breathing spontaneously, conversing and using their upper airway, eating, and moving around and exercising. Those are my ABCDEs. And uh, I think I can stop here. Thank you so much, Jafar. So you've obviously covered a big spectrum and this continuum of acute critical illness to chronic critical illness and prevention is a big key. The ABCDEF bundle that uh, that we're also familiar with, the ICU liberation movement that we're also familiar with. I mean, all of those principles absolutely apply whether we're dealing with our acutely critically ill patients or we're talking about our chronically critically ill patients in LTACs. We'll jump into a lot of questions during the Q&A section and uh, now I'd like to move on to Monica. Monica, we're going to let you share your screen. Thank you so much. Okay, great. So I'm going to focus more about what happens longer term. What the post-acute COVID-19 syndrome is when the patients continue to have ongoing symptoms. And it really makes a difference that it starts early and it starts in the ICU. So that's where I say it's a tale of two outcomes. So if they were very critically ill, if they were sick, it's gonna make a difference whether they have the program where you're doing ABCDE, if your early mobilization makes a big deal, if they were able to get acute rehab versus just went home and you know home health doesn't come to the patients. And, and so that really makes a, a big difference on how patients do. Um, rehab, very important. I love that you have me here today to discuss it. Uh, our field came out of the polio epidemic and so, and World War II and vets surviving that. And so we've already stepped up during another epidemic. So I felt this is a great way for rehab to continue to serve and at multiple levels. So we'll have team members that consult in the ICU and can help coordinate proning teams that can help coordinate discharge to rehab, as well as those of us who are doing outpatient care and taking care of the post-COVID syndrome patients with long COVID symptoms. And so, you know, we're happy to partner with you. Please make sure you're engaging your therapy team and your physiatrists. So what are the main complications that can be seen? And this was a paper that I wrote early in the pandemic with some other physiatrists and neurologists from 11 different countries. And we said, okay, this is what we know. This is what they're seeing early on already in Italy. And then this is what we know what happened in SARS and MERS before. And it was the typical stuff that you see in ICU patients where of course there's, you've heard some of it, respiratory sequela, PICS, but also they may have critical illness, myopathies or neuropathies. 
dysphagia, pain, psychiatric problems. So again, it wasn't totally unknown that we there are complications that can happen to critical illness and that we can take care of these patients as physical medicine and rehab specialists. And then came out more information about patients with ongoing symptoms. And it wasn't just ones who were in the ICU, but ones who were not even as critically ill or not even hospitalized. And this is probably one of the first papers that came out of JAMA, where they looked at patients from Italy, mid-50s, so not even that old. Um, They were not even very severe patients. Only 5% had invasive ventilation and the rest were maybe moderate or had pneumonia. And they looked at them 60 days later and 87% of them still had symptoms at 60 days. So you can see what was their acute symptoms and what was their post COVID-19 symptoms. All across the board, again, a majority of people, the number one thing thing being fatigue, then dyspnea, and then joint pain. So first look at persistent symptoms. And this is where it was started to be called long COVID. And more and more people were surviving. The numbers were getting higher. They were starting to get together in groups. There's a lot of social media groups where these patients are you know, communicating and talking about their symptoms. They call themselves long haulers. I like to just stay with post-acute COVID-19 patients. And so in this study done through Indiana University, where they actually went in and they looked at these patients online, and they said, what are the symptoms that you had? And these were the symptoms that they had. So, you know, 100%, everyone had fatigue. Then you can see the other list of what were the most common things muscle, joint pain, shortness of breath, couldn't get back to exercise, headaches, couldn't sleep, anxiety, memory problems in almost 50% of people. And these were survivors of all levels, not just ones who were in the ICU. And so another interesting thing about 25% of the symptoms were something related to some sort of pain. So, you know, pain being needing to be addressed in this patient population. This is a longer study that just came out in Lancet last month. And this was from a hospital, patients who are hospitalized in Wuhan, and they looked six months later from patients who were discharged. Of course, they had some patients that were not as severe and some that were a little bit more severe. They didn't put the most severe ones in and, you know, 1700 plus patients. And six months later, 76% of patients were still having at least one symptom again, fatigue being the most common thing, muscle weakness, having difficulty sleeping, having issues with depression and anxiety being some of the top things. And if they were a risk factor was being a woman, um, another one was being a little bit more higher on the disease severity. And so now we're seeing, okay, we have data six months later, patients still suffering from post-acute COVID symptoms. And most of the data that is out right now is patients who are hospitalized, but in starting a clinic, it's not only the patients that were hospitalized that are suffering. This is another recent study. They looked at patients who were from a clinic in Paris, France, and not, and this was more outpatients, so not ones who were hospitalized. 45-year-old, mostly female patients, and they actually had an increase in 25% of new neurologic symptoms after having a symptom-free interval. So they kind of had COVID, it was mild to moderate maybe, Uh, they didn't need to be hospitalized for the most part, they felt like they were doing better. And then, you know, three weeks later, new symptoms, sensory disturbances, numbness, tingling, brain fog, other neurologic signs, uh, just all the things that you're hearing in the complaints it was prolonged in patients' weakness and happening later, even after having feeling like they got over COVID and then it came back. So I think we're learning a lot, lot more about this. We're not studying as much as population, which we really should be you know, trying to study more. Everyone is different. Everyone that I see, their symptoms are different, their course is different, how they were treated, who believes them. You, these patients, 
these clinic visits take a long time. You really have to listen to their story, what happened, do very you know intense assessments of everything. Look at the psychosocial stressors because that is also affecting how they're doing as well, but do not blame it on anxiety or stress or depression because we know it's not just that. And then they're very thankful that you're discussing COVID rehab. Um, one thing we definitely know, and I always like to talk about is health disparities that are occurring with COVID and it's just you know affecting more populations, black, Hispanic, native populations more than it is other populations. And so again, I wrote another paper with some colleagues in my field where we said, this is a call to action that these patients are gonna be disproportionately affected and that therefore we need to give them rehabilitation care and make sure that we're focusing on rehabilitation care for everyone, not just our insured patients and not just our patients who have the resources for it. And being in San Antonio, it's a majority minority city. It's a large city. We have, of course, mostly Hispanic patient population. So to me, it was very important to bring this to our city and to South Texas to be able to care for our large Latinx population here. And also we have two clinics, one in our you know, UT health practice, which has more type of private patients. And we have one in our university practice that has more of a you know, county mixed Medicaid payer mix. So that way we were taking care of all types of patients. We you know, started and it was like, we need a mission. Why are we doing this? And some of it was, we need to serve our patient population. We need to make their lives better whatever it may be, physical, cognitive, functional, and, you know, serve them with compassionate, professional care. And that is what I feel that we're doing. Our assessments for our clinic is very systematic. We are doing the screening even before they come in, whether they're doing it online or we're doing it, you know, by talking to them beforehand, we're looking for anxiety, depression, satisfaction with life, PTSD, some are getting more cognitive tests. We're doing a symptom screen. You know, what did they have? What do they continue to have? And a telemedicine physical exam. What we order, it really depends on what the patient has. Uh, if it's a primary pulmonary thing, then they may need more, you know, another chest x-ray. They may need more imaging. Do they need pulmonary function tests? Uh, there are some cardiac screening guidelines that are out there already about, you know, do they need high sensitivity troponins and EKGs, plus or minus echoes or cardiac MRIs. Now, a lot of patients with autonomic dysfunction, some of them I will send for tilt table testing. Some might need, you know, more advanced imaging, vitamin D, and then other specialty consults, just again, depending on what they need. So again, I'm seeing two groups of patients, severe, they were in the hospitalized, they did really, you know, they were really, really sick. They had everything, steroids, remdesivir, everything we had in our hospital was the hospital that had the most remdesivir patients in the trial in the country. So, um, you know, we had to take care of a lot of really critically ill patients and, um, and then those patients, some of them were able to get rehab and they have more of the typical neuromuscular complications and they're still struggling at home and they need help with, you know, their, they have interstitial lung disease or on, ongoing COVID lungs. But the vast majority of patients I'm seeing are were mild to moderate. They never went to the hospital. They kind of just um, quarantined at home. They tried to call physicians. They maybe went to urgent care and were told they were fine. They didn't get anything. They didn't get a lot of treatments or direction. And they just like worried. And then, you know, they have all these ongoing symptoms. Our own clinic data, I'll kind of run a little bit through um, some of the patients that we're seeing. You know, we pulled some of this stuff from Epic. For the most part, a majority of females we're seeing versus males in our clinic and some of it is self-referral and some is referral from specialists or from primary care doctors like i said about 75 percent of the patients were never hospitalized so the vast majority we're seeing are ones that were just at home of course it, you know we said 80 percent of patients have mild to moderate disease so and only two patients that we've seen were intubated so i don't know what's happening to the intubated patients do they just like are doing awesome at home or i don't know maybe they're just happy to be alive, but they're not coming through our clinic. Um, young, young patients. So 40 is the most common age range where we're seeing patients. 
And I think we're seeing more and more that we know this is tied to inflammation and the immune system. So cytokine storm, which all the inflammation, mast cell activation, as well as then they're now seeing more autoimmune antibodies in people who are suffering. So it may be that the immune system keeps on revved up and there's multiple papers that are showing that, including in patients who are outpatients. And maybe the younger people have a, you know, a more robust uh, immune system and that's why they're still having some of these symptoms. We are seeing a majority of Hispanic population, about 60%. So, you know, very happy to be serving that population. Referring to subspecialties, so therapy referral trends since PM&R, we're seeing these patients, seeing what they need. Physical therapy by far is the most common, and that sometimes is some is formal pulmonary therapy, but a lot of it is just, you know, the traditional physical therapy. The next most common thing is behavioral health, because in screening these patients, you'll see there's a lot of underlying anxiety, depression, PTSD, and then some occupational therapy, speech therapy, and neuropsych as well. And then as far as specialists, this is in order of how many I have seen. So cardiology, I send to a lot more than pulmonology because a lot of them are having more like chest pains and autonomic dysfunction, et cetera. And like I said, the most severe ones, uh, I am not seeing as much of. So maybe that's why they're not as many are getting to pulmonology. Pain, MSK, they're needing EMGs, psych, neurology, infectious disease. And so these are all the types of diagnoses we're seeing and, you know, taking care of. So anything from the weakness, the fatigue, true neuropathies, autonomic dysfunction, uh, POTS, the myofascial pain and headaches, which can be treated, deconditioning, the brain fog, and then more severe st- stuff. Like, you know, I, there's a patient that's a four limb amputation with a stroke and hemiparesis. So it, it goes across the board. And we use our community. We have, you know, a few different centers that are our own, but it's a large area. So we send people also, and we know there's good community rehab and we try to get them rehab as much as er, as possible early, including inpatient rehab, home if they can get it, um, and then ongoing and including mental health services. So this is pretty much, I'll be happy to answer questions a little bit later. Thank you so much, Monica. That was a lot of great content in a short span of time. And I think you've queued it up very nicely for our next uh, panelist as well. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the massive burden of mental health issues. And uh, Deb, uh, let's go into your slides. Thank you so much. Great, thanks. So as I said, we talk about the behavioral consequences of trauma. Interestingly enough, a lot of the data you just saw mirrors the general population results, which I find interesting. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Next slide, please. So, you know, the economic, the the effect of COVID-19 is far reaching because it's not just an illness, an infection, the economic downturn has been very significant. And just for you to know, each point downturn and economic downturn as it has an increased association of suicide. So loss of disruption of day-to-day activities and schedules. Um, The issue we talked a lot about is loss of family, friends, social, and coworkers, but the social isolation which already has been mentioned, is probably one of the most important and far-reaching issues that may uh, actually affect the behavioral health of our population. Next slide, please. So uh, stress-related conditions, you already heard what uh, these other folks have found, you know, major depression, acute and post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, substance use disorders. Uh, you may be aware already that alcohol sales are up like 8%. Uh, you know, overdoses uh, from opioids is reportedly very high as well, recently in a JAMA article. Next slide, please. I'm just pointing out to you uh, for the audience what to think about when you work with your patients to quite frankly, your own life. You know, the PHQ-2 are two questions for depression, but you know, it's depressed mood, feeling down. You may not even feel down as the person actually just doesn't have any interest in pleasure all in most activities. I think you have to think about that when you see your patients who are non-COVID, because it's just an epidemic of these problems. Next slide, please. Anxiety disorders, feeling nervous, anxious, on edge, not being able to stop or control worrying. Again, for a two week period, you can imagine several who have this for several months. Next slide, please. Mm -hmm. And then PTSD, you know, the 
when you discuss PTSD in this setting, it's really, there's nothing like what we're experiencing here. You think of PTSD like you had a trauma, could be ICU admission, for example, but the bottom line is this trauma is ongoing. So when PTSD begins, when acute stress stops, it's very hard to determine. But PTSD is defined as having intrusive thoughts and nightmares about the event, avoiding the situation that made you scared. And you do have to think about the political issues about this as well. A negative affect and cognition and hyperarousal. Next slide, please. Substance use is something where substance use disorders, by the way, are great in terms of intensity. People can be functioning, for example, alcoholics, but the bottom line is if somebody is, if the use of the substance causes either psychosocial or work uh, distress or behavior, and the person keeps on drinking or inhaling or shooting up in spite of uh, the fact that they're warning signs, that's when it's a substance use disorder. Next slide, please. Interestingly enough, the uh, neurobiology of these illnesses have a lot in common and not surprising, uh, prevention can happen, strengthening protective factors, social support, coping, physical activity. You already heard about this today. Reducing risk factors, substance use is a big one, negative appraisal life events, Avoiding something does not make it better. And of course, screening for these illnesses, which actually, you know, Monica talked about already. And the treatments of these illnesses are very similar to SSRIs, pharmacotherapy works very well. Psychotherapy, these are manualized uh, versions of psychotherapy that do work. It's usually up to 14 sessions. And uh, just for alcoholism, you may know that 12 steps is as good as any other, you know, pharmacotherapy you want to have for that person. Next slide, please. So now let's talk about the, the pandemic. So the y-axis is the event, all right? You can pick the surge if you want, right? And then you have one or two years out. And this is basically reviewed by Bonanos and a lot of work on PTSD. And what's found is if somebody, could be a coworker, or could be a patient, was really rattled by the event, they really could not integrate what's going on. Their anxiety was off the wall. They have a like, high likelihood of having a chronic course. That's the top one. Then if folks are somewhat affected by the event but are functioning, they may go either way. Over a two-year period, you can see the dashed line, they may recover. However, a proportion of these folks can actually have a delayed onset. Our World Trade Center experience in Mount Sinai shows it could be up to 18 years after the event that people develop PTSD. Next slide, please. Another way of thinking about this is a very good slide actually uh, by Samsha. It's talking about you have the pre-disaster effects. You know, of course, there was very little warning. Actually, correct with this too, because we didn't know what was happening. But then you had this very acute phase. And for those on the East Coast and the West Coast, it was, you know, March, April, May. People felt heroic. They had a honeymoon phase. People banded together. People being, you know, coworkers were being clapped when going home. Firefighters were out there. And then, unfortunately, what happens is disillusionment. People are tired. They don't want it. They're watching the news way too much. And there are more insults are going on. It could be psychosocial issues, right? Layoffs, family work, life imbalance. Because the goal is to have reconstruction, but we are definitely in the disillusionment phase, if you think about us as a society. Next slide, please. So what are the factors contributing to risk of these behavioral health consequences? Already somewhat discussed, the dose of trauma. If you were a patient, obviously it's very traumatic, but if you also had other traumas going on independent of COVID-19, but it could be deaths, for example. If a person had prior exposure to trauma, sometimes it's called inoculation against it, but sometimes actually people who had bad trauma beforehand and did not recover, they're more likely to actually have PTSD. Prior psych history, problems of living prior to disaster, low socioeconomic status, which is an issue for what you've already been hearing about, Lack of social support. If you have to pick one thing about how, how we do well versus not is having social support. And the isolation that was already discussed is a key problem, obviously, in the hospitals. Secondary stresses we talked about, being female and ethnic minority. Next slide, please. So a study done by the CDC in June uh, showed that the general population, and we don't know about how many of these had COVID, you can think about that, but nonetheless, we do know that Almost 41% of over 5,000 respondents who complete the service across the states report an adverse mental or behavioral health condition. And what were they? Anxiety or depression, trauma and stress-related disorder symptoms, nuance or increased substance use, 
and seriously, uh, 10% can seriously consider suicide. And who are the most affected? Young people and people of minorities. Next slide, please. Also, it's important, um, we think of ourselves as healthcare workers essential, but this was about any essential healthcare worker. And it's quite dramatic, you know, the y-axis is the uh, adjusted odds ratio, you know, almost two times the risk of having some anxiety, right? Symptoms actually stress-related. Uh, onset of this brown one is actually uh, substance use. Next slide, please. So I take, I mentioned this to you because when you see your patients, you now know that in the general population, forget about COVID, we have a real problem, a real public health problem. And as you know, behavioral health resources aren't so good, particularly, unfortunately, for the poor and minorities. So um, social isolation. Social isolation in and of itself, without any other things we're talking about, increases the likelihood of depression, anxiety, even psychosis, dementia, and of course, substance use. Interestingly enough, social isolation has actually uh, medical problems too. You know, coronary heart disease, cancer, and even all-cause mortality. So I, I think that that kind of fits in with everything else that you've been hearing today. I know it went very fast, but I think the other presenters did a very good job in showing that in the patients you're taking care of, it's the same. The, the statistics are just overwhelming. Thank you. Thank you so much um, to all of you. And what, what, uh, what I'm hearing from all of you is, we're going to experience, we're already in the midst of experiencing a lot of the consequences of COVID-19. There were problems in our healthcare systems prior to COVID-19, which have only been magnified in a lot of different ways. Both Monica and Deb touched upon disparities in, in healthcare. And I want to drill down a little bit on these disparities as we begin to think about resources for our patients uh, and COVID-19 survivors moving forward. So when we, when particularly when we're thinking about this disillusionment phase that we're in, because we thought it was going to be a sprint and now it's become a marathon and it's been wave after wave. So I want to, I'll ask all three of you this question. As we begin to move forward from this point on, as we're beginning to prepare hospitals, health systems for different resources, what should we be doing for our patients and families? So Jafar, I'll start with your patient patients, the chronically critically ill patients that you're seeing. What do you, uh, what advice would you give to hospitals and health systems as they're preparing for this wave of survivors? The first thing I would mention to most hospitals is in the acute phase, the day you, you admit a patient to the ICU, start preparing for them to potentially be chronically critically ill. Uh, if you wait a week or two, that's, that's too late, and then the consequences will be felt for months afterwards. Um, we need to rethink our sedation and analgesia protocols to make sure that we minimize the use of uh, long-acting drugs and drugs that are associated with prolonged delirium. And we need to rethink uh, the use of endotracheal tubes and the duration of invasive mechanical ventilation. Uh, the cutoffs I use are two times normal. So a normal ventilation is six to eight liters, and a normal FIO2 at room air is 21%. If at one week you need twice that, if you need 45% or more FiO2 or 12, 13, 14 liters of minute volume, at one week that patient is now prolonged mechanical ventilation and we need to get that endotracheal tube out. Uh, we need to substitute a tracheostomy in place of it. And it's, it's not a setback. It's actually a step forward for the patient who will now be allowed to, uh, to wake up, be allowed to use its upper airway, potentially phonate and or swallow. As far as resources going forward, we need to prepare our long-term acute care hospitals for both the volume of patients and the, the care, including infection control that they're going to, going to need, staff them correctly, prepare them with PPE. And then in the discharge uh, planning, we need to plan for the long-term mental and cognitive impairment. We all worry, and you know, every time there's a pandemic, there's a, there are the studies of one-year impact on pulmonary function. The real reason patients who recover from a pandemic utilize healthcare resources is for cognitive, mental, and psychological problems, not, not the lung function. Post-SARS at one year, all the studies showed minor restrictive ventilatory defects. It's not the lung function that, that turns them into long-term consumers of healthcare resources. It's, it's really the cognitive, mental, and psychological aspects that we need to plan for. So it's 
plan for chronic critical illness on day one, eliminate the use of those, uh, those factors that would uh, lead to prolonged delirium, and plan for prolonged mental cognitive and psychological impairment in, in the LTAC. Great advice, Jafar. Uh, so Monica, let's go to you, which is when we're talking about patients on the other end of the spectrum, you showed you showed a slide that was very powerful. Most of the patients that you're seeing in your clinics right now are have, have not been, only two two of those patients were, were intubated. And we know on the other end of the spectrum, there are critical care recovery clinics, and there are these COVID centers that are seeing patients who've been discharged from ICUs. So what advice do you have for hospitals, health systems, as they're preparing for these patients who are not sick enough, who did not come to their hospitals, but who have all of these issues now? What advice would you give them? For healthcare systems, I would say, engage your community when you can, and have protocols in place so that when people who do not need to be hospitalized, that they can go and get good updated data on how they can be able to take care of themselves at home. You know, and also if there's physicians in your practice who take care of outpatients, making sure they have the correct data to take the patients. Probably one of the worst things you can do right now is someone who is not needing to be hospitalized to give them steroids. And yet you see physicians, you know, still giving outpatients who have mild disease steroids, which is not something, it's only for a certain population of patients who are hospitalized. The other thing to do is maybe go out to the community and say, please stay healthy, please stay in shape. You know, that way your body's in the best shape possible to be able to take on the illness. It's something that we do in cancer rehabilitation. It's called prehab. So you help, you know, make sure they're as strong as possible to take on a sickness load. So going into your community, um, making sure that patients are staying active, you know, keeping their levels of vitamin D up, know that they have access to a physician, make sure that the physicians are educated in how to best follow the most updated guidelines in treating outpatients. So that way we can help with the long-term symptoms. Great advice on community engagement. And of course, just as Jafar highlighted, prevention is better than any kind of cure, prehabbing to prepare ourselves for what's coming next and bouncing back from, from those illnesses. That's, that's great advice. Deb, uh, in all three of your presentations, we heard heard about the massive impact of uh, of COVID nineteen as well as pre COVID nineteen conditions on uh, on our our mental health. And despite all of that, despite knowing um, that this is only going to be a bigger problem, what what issues are you um, are you witnessing in the United States and the world over uh, for addressing some of these these problems that our patients and families are facing? You know, um, first of all, community engagement, I think, is, cr is critical for us all to do. You know, the problem is that whenever there's a disaster, there's a lot of money for different kind of things, medical, you know, equipment, the housing, whatever, if it comes through. There's no national agenda, you know, here or in any other a country that's sustainable that deals with the behavioral health consequences of this. And without substantial destigmatization and added resources, however they may be, People are going to go and they're just going to keep on suffering. Certain groups we know don't want to go for care. They they think that illness, including healthcare workers, if you're meant if you have a mental problem, you must be weak. So not the case. People can be the most resilient people in the world and have a major depression. So we have to actually convince ourselves as clinicians that it's okay to share with one another. And it's very important to spend a couple extra minutes with your patients, you know, to say it's okay if you're not feeling well. We're here, we're listening. You know, remember, most psychiatric care is given anyway by internists. Psychiatrists are a very small part of the puzzle. Thank you, Deb. You, you highlight an ongoing chronic issue and, and moving from that into another chronic issue of disparities in access, the healthcare inequities that affects the entire spectrum. Pre-COVID-19, we knew this was a problem. Post-COVID-19, what are we going to do about addressing some of these healthcare disparities? Uh, Jafar, I'll, I'll start with you first. We, we have programs at the Cleveland Clinic that, that go back years, because obviously Cleveland is a, uh, is a large city and it has a, uh, a large population that deals with the issues of poverty and lack of access to healthcare. Um, it's been an ongoing issue with us and the city government, uh, and we have long-standing programs that we've expanded to factor this in. 
uh, we have yet to come to come up with a good conclusion of how we're going to, to give everybody all the care that they need, uh, mainly because of uh, not only access and availability of health insurance, but also the, uh, the type of employment that a lot of our patients have. They can't get the time off to dedicate to that. So that, that I, I really do believe requires uh, governmental action. And we, we do need to be advocates for our patients and we need to lobby our own governments, both at the local, state and, and the federal level to, to allow for more you know, paid sick leave, uh, to improve access to rehabilitative services, uh, post IC recovery clinics, and include that in uh, what would be the basic package of uh, insurance coverage for our patients. Um, I was just answering a, a question in the in the chat about uh, how do you get these patients approved for pulmonary rehab because you know historically pulmonary rehab you need a diagnosis of COPD or interstitial lung disease and it almost always requires a peer to peer and you can all, you can sometimes get around that by ordering a structured exercise program and using the diagnosis chronic respiratory failure but still that requires a phone call from us so it takes a lot of advocacy and we're going to have to use our own. Uh, you know, you know, vote at the ballot box and make sure that our uh, that our representatives in government understand that this is a priority for our community. Thank you, Jafar and Monica. You you alluded to some of the healthcare disparities in your talk as well. Uh, for patients, how how are you navigating getting reimbursement for some of the services that are not necessarily, like Jafar also mentioned, not necessarily covered by by insurance because they didn't think it was going to be a problem. Right. So just kind of making the process, you know, systems-based practice. That's what I always teach the residents. You have to learn what system are they in, what insurance do they have, and what can we get for them, and what can we advocate for as much as possible. And I feel that in our system, at least, you know, we try to do as much for the patient. We have our our county resources, and they have a full therapy program there, and they have excellent uh, behavioral health and mental health benefits that they can receive as well. So it's just wonderful to work in a system that offers this for, you know, different levels of, for people who have insurance and ones who just have kind of the county assistance and are able to get them, but get them that care. Of course, they couldn't go to a private place and get it, or they'd have to pay cash. So we keep it in the system where we know they're offered those resources. And some of it is supported by the county. But again, we have to go above that and make sure that the government will continue to want to fund these programs. And we have to take it through whether it be the CDC or, you know, another big group to say these is there is going to be ongoing issues. Patients are going to need care for the long term, and we have to make sure that it's funded throughout the continuum of care, not just at the beginning of care, but for needs that they're going to have, or you're going to have a population that isn't going to be able to go back to work, and that's going to be a problem. You're absolutely right, Monica. And in some ways, this global collaboration, so many papers, we have upwards of 85,000 index publications on PubMed alone. I think it's, of course, the onus uh, of the global scientific community to shed light on some of these issues and then take them from, from the science to guidelines, from guidelines to policy and advocate. And like Jafar said, we've got to be, we've got to be advocates uh, for our patients. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about the social isolation issue that Deb, you you highlighted and uh, visitation, family visitation has been has been an ongoing issue with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've gone from wave to wave trying to overcome some of those challenges. Uh, Deb, what advice would you have for uh, hospitals, health systems in trying to mitigate the impact of this social, social isolation, particularly given all the constraints of COVID-19? Well, if you're talking now about just visitation and social isolation, specifically that, I will say one thing in our health system, and I think elsewhere, quite frankly, the folks who really helped with this were the chaplains, you know, because they weren't actually doing procedures. We actually had a, a we, we recruited a volunteer chaplains who are friends and family across the country to help. And, and I will say that that's something that's a resource that is a valuable resource to consider, particularly if they're trained, because they often were the ones who listened to the family. I think that's something that is is not mentioned enough. We're you know we're a secular hospital system, but I know the data, you know, on the use of chaplains for both um, you know families and patients. So I, I do think that's one thing to think about. Uh, you know, as um, in terms of otherwise social isolation, if you're taking care of outpatients, 
I would say that a couple just very obvious things to tell them, maintain it, try to get back whatever, um, you know, schedule you had, make sleep hygiene extremely important. You're a good guys are pulmonologists. You know, I know that I know we haven't published yet, but there's data to show that the most sleep disruptive healthcare workers were substantially more likely to have a behavioral health consequence let alone all the cognitive issues and metabolic issues. So I think that's a very big issue. And um, to let people know that reaching out for help is not a sign of weakness. We are a, biologically speaking, we are people who like to congregate. So that asking for help is, 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 is a good thing to do. I, I would just, simple tips that make sense. Great, thank you so much, Deb. And a question that several of the audience members had asked about the duration of, of rehabilitative services. So Monica, question for you and, uh, and, and Jafar as well. In terms of um, pulmonary rehab, for how long should, uh, should patients be recommended for that? And if they are undergoing an outpatient rehabilitation program, for how long should patients with this post-acute COVID be part of such a program, uh, Monica? I always say it's very individualized because every patient's different and, you know, hopefully every center sees them and you know, some centers have very formalized programs where it's like, this is our four week program and the first week we do this and then the next week we do this. And so it's a four week program. And then some are more, since, like I said, every patient kind of presents differently and not all need formal pulmonary rehab, especially if it's just more debility, autonomic dysfunction, exercise intolerance, then they're going to need a different type of rehabilitation than someone who has interstitial lung disease and gets pulmonary rehab. So again, it's individualized and it can be anywhere from some need, maybe just a few sessions to be monitored and get back to kind of an exercise program that they can do on their own at home. And some need, you know, four to six weeks, especially if they have more severe or neurologic symptoms. Thank you. And Jafar, what, uh, what should families and patients expect to be sort of the median uh, length of stay or at uh, LTAC facilities or other kinds of long-term uh, health facilities? So uh, that is uh, dependent on uh, what got them into the long-term acute care hospital. So of the 70 plus patients who are mechanically ventilated through a tracheostomy, their average length of stay is um, longer than five weeks. Uh, and those who, who get liberated, we liberate them usually in the, in the third week and some in the fourth week. Uh, so uh, that's the duration of, uh, of stay for those who are mechanically ventilated. Um, strangely enough, the ones who have had the longest length of stay in the LTAC are the ones who are admitted on high-flow nasal, nasal cannula, who never end up intubated. Uh, those patients, for uh, whatever reason, I have yet to find uh, the key, uh, they have a, a much longer length of stay. Uh, it takes a very prolonged period when uh, when they come to us on on high flow nasal cannula. I also noticed in that uh, in that cohort a second surge of cytokine storm eight or nine days in, where a, a lot of them have had deteriorating and required readmission to the intensive care unit uh, for a, a second uh, you know interval stay. So those are the patients who I have yet to get a good handle on but they do tend to, to have a longer uh, duration of illness and a longer length of stay. Uh, on average, we're talking about a month. So if, if you were to average everyone together, we're, we're, in, we're in the four to six weeks range in the long-term care, care hospital. Our average length of stay in the ICU for all, uh, uh, for all patients is 12 days. Great, thank you. So we're coming up to the end of our hour and I'm going to ask all of uh, our, our panelists to give us their final words of wisdom and advice. So Deb, Let's start with you. You know, I think that we're from three different disciplines in, in this talk. And the fact that you guys as intensivists and a rehabilitation for physiatrists are talking about the behavioral consequences, it's just, an, it's just a phenomenon that I've never really seen before. And I think that it's a great opportunity for different disciplines to have crosstalk, to be honest with you. There can be an efficiency of care if we do that. And quite frankly, a medical home, I mean, what you're doing, Monica, you know, you're almost, if you had people on place, you wouldn't have to refer out for some of the things you're talking about behavioral health. Just a thought. Great point, Deb. That cross-communication, that collaboration, uh, that's, that's what's going to get us through and also prepare us really well for any future pandemics as well. Monica, final words of wisdom. 
Final words of wisdom are just listen to the patients. They've been suffering. They've been suffering just from the pandemic because of the mental health. They've suffered at home. They've suffered in the hospital. They're, you know, they couldn't have their families visit them or they were at home wondering if they were going to die because of all the doom scrolling they had done on, on TV or seen on social media. And then no one really, you know, knows what the future holds for them. Um, and so just, really listen to patients, believe patients and get them help. The true epitome of patient-centered care. Thank you, Monica and Jafar. So I was just thinking about this the other day. I graduated from medical school in 2003. So in the interim 16, 17 years, we have had SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and now COVID-19. That's four in 16 years, which means we have had a major international infectious disease outbreak once every four years. Uh, the take-home point I would want people to, to, to remember is that pandemic preparedness, pandemic responsiveness has to be a pillar of our healthcare system. And these worldwide uh, infectious disease outbreaks are not going away. Uh, we haven't had the best experience with COVID so far as a country, uh, but we do need to use 2021 to iron out the, the, the problems that we've had so far, which is uh, providing for a continuum of care from diagnosis to ICU stay to post-ICU chronic critical illness to rehabilitation to return to society, return to functioning. And uh, that's something that's going to be a challenge for us in 2021 to recover from the, the last year. And for the next pan pandemic, we really need to be ready uh, because uh, we, we see the consequences of delaying preparing for this kind of a surge. Thank you so much to uh, Jafar, Deb, Monica, and all of our attendees. We have learned a tremendous amount during this webinar. Obviously, there were so many questions which, which we couldn't get to, but uh, the information for our speakers and panelists will also be available. Um, we'll share their email ID so you can continue the conversation. The recording for this webinar is going to be available on our chest uh, uh, website. So please uh, listen in again, reflect, and there's a lot of work uh, ahead of us. So despite us being, like Deb pointed out, in this disillusionment phase, it looks like the only way to go is up and there's a lot of hope. So thank you so much and have a wonderful day.